All right. Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you. Great time of worship with you and good to be with you. Uh, as our kids are being uh, dismissed right now, I want to tell you we have a special guest here today. Rod Whited has brought uh, an adopted son, not technically legally adopted son, uh, but an adopted son nevertheless, a father, a son in the faith, uh, Jeff Owen. It's good to have you with us. Jeff, stand up so everybody can see how big you are. This, would, I'll tell you, but welcome him and then I'll tell you about him, okay? All right, Jeff, good to have you. Jeff, Jeff is the attorney, retired attorney that you don't say no to because he's so picking big, you know, and, uh, but we're glad to have you with us, Jeff. You retired and you moved to a small town outside of Pittsburgh and, uh, and you, you and your wife moved, moved there to help this, well, to help the fa be a father to the fatherless. What an awesome thing you and your buddy uh, did. Gary is his name and Gary just finished a walk. By the way, welcome to Florida on these beautiful sunny weather. It's a good time to be here in Florida, but he finished a walk from Pittsburgh here, 1300 miles, finished it yesterday in order to raise money for this ministry that you guys are doing called Pit Care. And we're, we're so thankful for the sacrifices that you're making to move to a place where young boys need, need spiritual dads. Thank you for your ministry. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, today we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Our great God, what a joy to be able to come into your presence today and to worship you, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. We honor you, the God who is holy and righteous and just and yet loving and kind and merciful and gracious to us, your people. As we gather in this place today on the first day of the week, we do so remembering the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do so remembering that everything that he did takes care of everything that we did. And we know that we are sinners and we are saved by grace and the work of Christ. And Lord, today, as we rest upon him and him alone for our salvation, we come into your presence and we admit that we are your people and in deep need of your grace. We need to know your truth. We, we often feel that life is bigger than us and that we really don't have what it takes. Uh, we're, we, we, we're sinner saints. We, we've been forgiven and yet we have much to be forgiven of for this week. And so we confess our sins. We rest in you and we ask that you would continue to open our minds and our hearts. Lord, may we leave our burdens with you right now, even as we look ahead at what you have to say to us. Some of us, our hearts are so heavy because of guilt and shame. And we ask that Holy Spirit, you would be the one to deal with that right now. Thank you for Jeff and Gary and their wives and their ministry and outside of Pittsburgh. We thank you for these young um, families that have new kids, brand new kids to begin to pour into how we thank you for them, for our new members. Father, for this church, and we ask your blessing. Now we pray for the one who teaches. You'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For we have come to see Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing I know about little boys is little boys all have a particular allergy. All little boys have an allergy to clean, C-L-E-A-N. All little boys have an allergy to clean, right? 
They all do. It's DNA-induced. It just is. All little boys are dirt magnets. They're mud collectors. They enjoy it. They thrive in it. It was true for me. It was true for my boys, and it's true for my grandsons. Uh, we love dirt. We, uh, well, we did back then, and still some of us do now. And uh, I got to tell you, part of my story is that I was raised in Southern California next to this big open field. It was, it was glorious. Our wall right here, an open field full of dirt and tumbleweeds. And so my World War II vet dad uh, dug a foxhole on the other side of our fence. And, and then there were some guys that had a, a little fort out there about 40 yards out. And then we would play army and it was great. Sometimes we'd use plastic guns, but why use plastic guns when you could use rocks? Rocks were always better. And, and so we did that. And some of you were shocked, but you'd be amazed. Ask those little boys a number of times they had rock fights. I can't believe I still have two eyes that function, but that is what it is. And now the, the problem with living next to a field that was full of dirt was that back then we all wore cuffed pants, all right, Levi pants. We all wore cuffs. And when we would come inside, we would have dirt in our cuffs. Now, moms hate dirt. And my mom was the queen. Somehow she knew the queen of dirt hating. She, she would somehow always know when I was outside playing because when I would come around, you know, the front door would be bolted and locked. Furniture would be piled up and so I'd be forced to come around through the garage to come into the house and she'd be standing there. I don't know how, it was like she was omnipresent one. She was always there standing there on Saturdays when I come in and, and she would say, all right, let's deal with the cuffs. The cuffs had to come down and the dirt had to fall. Some of you guys know what I'm saying. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I see that hand. I see that. Anyway, that's the way we were. Dirt had to come out before you could come in the house. And um, uh, I also learned that she didn't like gum on the walls and things like that too. So moms were into clean and all that kind of stuff. And I really appreciate that. I understand that now. I, understand, I didn't understand it back then. I didn't appreciate it much then because dirt was good. Now, sometimes when we guys grow up, we still like dirt and we don't think dirt's all that bad. I love the story uh, of a trial that took place in a small Mississippi town. I'll read it to you. The prosecuting attorney called to his stand the first witness, uh, a grandmotherly elderly woman, and he approached her and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She said, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You, you think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned, and he uh, did, was knocked off his script, and so he pointed across the room, and he, he said, um, uh, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And she launched out again, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and has a drinking problem. He can't, he can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention he cheated on his wife. Three different women. One of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. <laughs> and the defense attorney just about died. The judge asked both counselors to approach the bench, and in a very quiet voice said, if either of you ask this if you, either of you idiots ask this woman if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> so little boys love dirt, and sometimes when we grow up, 
We don't think dirt or moral dirt is such a bad thing, but it is. And when we get to the scripture, what we find out is that, uh, that, that all of us have, have dirt in our cuffs, men, women, children, born sinners. We all have dirt in our cuffs, dirt in our hearts. We are systemically uh, affected by moral uh, dirt, spiritual dirt. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in this curse and there's a very real sense in which all of us like the dirt and don't like to be confronted about the dirt. It is just the way it is. Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short, is, is a flashback to Genesis 3, isn't it? This huge flashback that shows the whole flow of biblical history. Creation, fall. Nobody is unaffected. Promise, a Savior will come. Fulfillment, he has come. And he's coming again. But the problem is we still live with this whole issue of, of, of dirt, stain, brokenness. Luther would call Christians sinner saints. Yeah, we are redeemed, but we still sin. So in the text that we're going to look at right now, Jesus is dealing with those who are trying to get clean. And, and they, they are aware of their dirt to some extent. Uh, they, they know they got to get clean from it. He's dealing with this. And, and we're going to look at this, this longer text, Matt, Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. And we're going to look at this whole idea of being dirty, getting clean, and how we can win against sin and shame in our own lives. And so let's take a look at it. This is God's holy word. Mark 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, uh, they, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, of all things. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of, rege of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Take account as I read through this. How many times is the word tradition seen in this text? It's all over the place. And I'll explain that. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother, uh, uh, must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. What you have handed down and many things like that you do. And he called the people to him and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile. 
And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods, what? Clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. What a great text this is. And maybe you picked out how he really is, how Jesus really is dealing with this idea of defilement, of dirt, uh, dirt in your cuffs, dirt, not, not, not in your cuffs, but in your heart, uh, systemic dirt that comes out of us that defiles us. What do you do with it? What do you do with the dirt? What do you do with the shame? What do you do with the guilt? In this text, Jesus deals with two categories of people. But I want to talk about three categories of people real quick, because around us every day of our life are three categories of people that deal with shame and guilt in different ways, and we need to know how to deal with them. The first category that is not in this text, but that we see every day of our life is the materialist, right? The materialist is a person who, who, who believes that the world is primarily a material existence, and in Jesus' day in Israel, there were not many pure materialists. There were theists and polytheists. Uh, the Israelites did believe in God. Um, and so there were what we might call true materialists in, in Israel. Not a lot of them, but practical materialists. Uh, those that say, okay, there's a God, but I'm going to live my life morally as if that God doesn't exist. And then, of course, 630 BC, by that time, the Greeks were already trying, by writing their philosophy, the, the golden era of Greek philosophy in the, in the 500s and the 400s, uh, starting back in the 600s, though, B.C., they, they, they said, let's try to do life without God. That's what Greek philosophy is. And, and, and it's because the gods were utter idiots anyway. I mean, if you read... If you read the Greek mythology gods, they were immoral as can be. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, and so many people were tired of them, certainly by the time of Christ. And so the reality is, is that we live in a culture with a lot of materialists, don't we? Now, that's not just you and me that like material things, okay? We're, not, we're talking about those that believe there is no God and that that which is material is all that really exists, and because that which is material is the only thing that really exists in this world, there's no real morals that go along with that. Some people, some materialists believe that, that the world just came into existence, that matter is eternal. They don't have any proof for that. They just take that as a matter of faith. And so we might say their religion is that matter is eternal. Uh, and some say, no, it came into being somehow, but we don't know how. They're agnostic as to that fact. But the bottom line, a lot of our friends today are just like that, aren't they? They say there is a big bang 
As one guy I read recently said, you know, I, I believe that there's a big bang, but there's got to be some that made that big bang, and Christians are that. We believe the big bang is not opposed to Christianity, but it started somehow, and there had to be somebody that started it. But those that don't believe, materialists that don't believe there was a start to all things, uh, have a religion. It's called scientism. They believe that science teaches us all the only things that we, that we know to be true, right? You heard that before? Science is the only thing that we can trust. But that statement, by the way, science is the only thing we can trust, you can't test that in a scientific way. It's a philosophical statement. That's what I like to say to them anyway. And I go, oh, really? So your statement's irrelevant. But be that as it may, materialists don't believe there's a God. And because there's no God, there's no ultimate meaning or values in life. No morals, right? And so, there, so there's, in a sense, no dirt. There's no moral dirt. And, uh, and, and, and so they live their lives in several ways. One way is to be relatively moral. Another way is to be flexibly moral. They're moral when they want to. Uh, or they're positively immoral. That's another way to live, right? Uh, a lot of uh, relativists or materialists uh, uh, believe that there is no true right or wrong. They are moral relativists, right? Jeff, have you seen moral relativists in your job as an attorney? I've got a whole passel of attorney jokes I'm not going to use on you right now. But I'm tempted. Moral relativism says there is no right or wrong, right? That's what they say. That's why it always kills me when I'm interacting with people that... Um, that, that say, you know, the, the reason I'm not a Christian is because there's so much evil in the world. And I say, well, wait a minute. I thought you didn't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a God. Well, if there's no God, then there's no right or wrong, right? You're right. There's no right or wrong. But you just said there is evil. And I said, and then I like to say, the existence of good and evil is the biggest argument for the existence of God. Because where does the good come from? I know, they get quiet too. But the bottom line here when I'm dealing with a moral, we can talk about that another time, but the deal with a moral relativist, the deal, the, the deal with, with somebody who doesn't, is a materialist who just has faith that everything just was, the problem with them is they still struggle with guilt. They still deal with shame. I, I, there's only one person I've ever dealt with in my years of ministry who said, I do not sin, I do nothing bad. And he was certifiable. <laughs> so the reality is guilt is 100%. I wonder what a materialist does with guilt when they admit that they do wrong. How do they process it? How do they deal with it? The Christian has the answer to that, and we'll deal with that at the end. But you're going to run into people all the time who are materialists, who have no absolute way to deal with their shame or their guilt. They got dirt in their cuffs and they can't get it off. They can't brush it off. They wash their hands over and over. I can't get rid of it. Well, the second group, really, the group that Jesus is dealing with here first and foremost is a self-salvationist. That's, that's who Jesus is really dealing with here. The Jews who will call self-salvationists. They believe in God and they believe in God's law. And they believe not only that God is the moral lawgiver in the universe, but they believe that God is the one who, uh, 
who judges those who break his law. Which, by the way, is so important for us to understand about our great God. That he is the moral lawgiver. That he is the truth. And that everything he says is true. But he is also the judge of that which breaks his law. And, and so he, the Jews believed that he was the lawgiver. And, and yet they had gotten to a point where they, where they had come to believe that the law of the Old Testament was given in such a way that if they were to keep the regulations of the law, if they keep it perfectly, then they'd be able to actually get all the dirt out of their cuffs. They'd be able to get it off them, out of their hearts and everything. They'd be able to, to, they'd be able to get clean by themselves before the God of the universe. They, they could get rid of the shame and they could get rid of the guilt. They were self-salvationists. They were on a self-salvation project. That was their life. Paul was like that before Jesus met him and stopped him in his tracks. And, and so it's fascinating to see this text in verse one. I, I love this. I could, can you picture Jesus sitting there and all of these lawyers from, uh, from Yale and Harvard just show up and gather, I mean, from uh, Jerusalem, gather around him, surround him. And uh, it says they gathered to him, gathered around him. Verse one, some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem and they saw Jesus, Jesus' unorthodox practices among his disciples. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus was not at all intimidated. If you want to see the most confident person in the world, it's Jesus. I love it. Uh, he knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. He was confident. He, didn't, he wasn't thrown off his game at all by these guys. They said to him, uh, listen, your, your disciples are not following the traditions of the elders. Did you count how many times? I counted this morning again. I counted five times, but as I was reading it, I missed two. I think there's seven, eight. You can tell me afterwards if you count. If you're down going like this and getting out your Logos word program, I'll, I'll, you can tell me later. Don't shout it out. Seven, eight times, traditions. See, what these guys had done, what these self-salvationist Jews had done is they'd gone to the law of God and they said, this is good. So obviously God gave us the law so that we could obey it and then be saved. And yet we know that the law was given after the Israelites were already rescued, right? They were grace rescued from Egypt and then he gave them the law. So the law was not given to get rescued. The law was given to rescued people, right? As to how to live. They were grace rescued from Egypt and now the law was given as to how to live. So the law was given to show the Israelites how to live, but also to show them God's holiness and that they never could keep the law perfectly themselves. You ever felt that when you read the Old Testament? Gosh, I feel a little dirty. Like my mom made me feel when I came in from playing in the field. I feel a little dirty. Even when I got the dirt out of my cuffs, I still felt bad because there was always residual in the cuff. So the law of God is given to show us we can never fulfill it. And it shows us the promise of a coming lamb that would eventually be the ultimate sacrifice to take our sins away. That's what the Old Testament promised and looked forward to. The Messiah. And what a wonderful thing uh, the Jews had, but they had, they, had, they had corrupted the law and then added to it. That made it worse. 
And so they came up with all kinds of ideas to, to make their obedience of God's law even better. And one of the illustrations that Jesus uses here is the, is the story about Korban, is the illustration of Korban. So the Jewish, the way it worked is the law said, honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother and, and take care of them to some extent. I, I, I add that to my kids whenever I read that text. Take care of them in their old age and dotage. But um, no, honor your father and mother. But, but what the Jews had done is they said, you know, I've given dad, I've given all my money to God. I've dedicated it all to my bank account belongs to God. I can't help you. Mom, it would be nice if I could help you but I can't. It's all God's. So you have to either go to the church and get some money or the synagogue, get some money or beg for it. But I can't help you. And that, in that way, they came up with traditions that helped them justify themselves, man-made traditions that either augmented the law or skirted the law. Self-salvationists had made their law PC. They had made their law as binding as God's law. Horrible. According to Jesus, because you can't deal with somebody who makes up their own law and thinks they fulfilled it. Those people become very self-righteous, very mean and nasty. We don't look at any of the Jews in the, in, interacted with Jesus and say, hey, these are wonderful people. I'd like to have them over for dinner. Now, these Pharisees, who were, by the way, the everyday pastors, the conservatives, these people were really, re really not nice people. And that's what happens to those who are on a self-salvationist journey. They take God's laws and they think they fulfill them and they augment God's laws and they change God's laws so that they think they can fulfill it. And they're absolutely lost and they're self-focused. Now, it's one of the group then and one of their way of dealing with guilt. They think they, by the way, they think they've gotten rid of their guilt, don't they? The self-salvationist. So the materialist, really have guilt, but shouldn't have any guilt, they don't think, because there's no moral laws. The self-salvationist thinks he's getting rid of his guilt by obeying the law perfectly. The only one who really does get rid of his guilt and shame is the Christian. Jesus says, as he called the people to again himself in verse 14, he said, he said, hear me, hear me, all of you. I like it when you can almost hear Jesus pleading, hear me on this. Have you ever done that with your kids after about the fourth violation in the same day? Hear me on this. I love you. Hear me on this. Uh, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. You guys are externalists. You got it all wrong. It's what comes out of our heart, isn't it? What comes out of our heart reveals what is in our heart, what is born into our heart as we were raised with Adamic sin. That's just the way it is. I was born a little sinner. I liked dirt when I was young because I was born to like dirt. Not only physical dirt because I'm a boy, but moral dirt. 
And if Jesus had not stopped me in the tracks, I'd have grown up to be those guys who would have justified all kinds of stuff. And even then, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And so it's our hearts that Jesus came to deal with inside out, not outside in, not religion, but, but the very bad news is that we're all sinners. The very good news is that Jesus is the only one with a remedy to deal with the inside problem, to deal with the sin, the guilt, the shame. It's an infection sin is. And isn't it great that the guilt we feel can actually be taken care of? And so can the shame. Guilt is, I have done bad. Shame is, I am bad. And only Jesus could take care of both of those. And some of us have been raised in performance-oriented houses. They were gospel, they were gospel-centered, follow Jesus, accept him as Savior and Lord. But we live in a performance-oriented culture. Catch this. Every culture is performance-oriented since the fall. And so ultimately, the way we're raised, it's only about what you produce and what you do. And so we're raised that way. And we think we translate it to, 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 to Christianity, but that's not the way it works in Christ. It's wonderful. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The guilt, the shame's killing you. Come to me. And so this text is such a powerful text, even for those of us who are Christians, because it reminds us of Ephesians when it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And, and what, this, what this text does is we think about the need for cleansing, the need for guilt removal and shame removal, is that we go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look at our materialist friends who oppose everything that you believe. They don't, want, they don't like what you stand for. And they tick you off, don't they? Sometimes. You ever get angry in an argument you don't win at work or you can't, things you can't bring? You ever get a little angry? I do. But the goal is our, to understand that our materialist friends really are locked in irrationality. Even their own arguments don't stand up to, 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 to scrutiny. And they don't have answers. And they still have guilt. And they still need a savior. And they still need us to hear, tell them about Jesus. And, and, and so our materialist friends need Jesus. They need grace that can only come from Jesus. Maybe you're a materialist here today. We're glad you're here. But those of us who are Christians can slip back into being self-salvationists, can't we? Look what I do for God. The older brother and the prodigal son, look what, I've done. look what I've done for you. God, this was a good week. How about you? I write everything down. I do just about. This is a good week for me. I got some brownie points this week. It's easy to slip into the self-salvationist mode of how good I am and, 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 and needing to come back to Jesus. What Jesus wants is to understand those who are true Christians and live humbly before him. And so today is a day where we can start over a new week, remembering who we are, the deeply beloved, redeemed daughters and sons, did you mess up this week in such a way that you, you haven't talked to anybody about it now in church? How are you doing? Good, good. Sunday, I'm not going to talk about it. But we all have dirt that it's better not to try to roll up into the cuff because eventually it'll leak out. 
It's better just to roll it all out and understand that Jesus paid for it. Come back and say, yeah. Chuck and I talked before the service. He said, how you doing? I said, good. It's full week, but I'm good. I mean, I'm good, but I can't do it. I mean, I can't do anything God really wants me to do. Schedule's too much. And he said, that's a good place to be. Isn't it? But we come back as God's people and we rest. There's no joy when you're always trying to make it happen with the God of the universe. But when you rest in his grace alone, you remember that you're his son and his daughter, no matter what the dirt. And when he hugs you, and he will, and you get up and start walking out to the next day, then what you find is you find his spiritual power to be better. Because you don't want the dirt anymore. Because grace continues to energize growth. It's the only way to live. It's the only joy in life. Getting and staying clean. Even the world gets this to some extent. I was watching an edition of Blacklist the other day. And I can use a secular illustration like this because Tim Keller said it was okay to do. I love the way they put it. It was so powerful, I almost wept. As these two very pagan characters were talking to each other, forgiving each other for the way they'd lived. And the one says to the other, I've always believed that it was better to treat somebody the way they are, not the way they were. And that's how the Father deals with you and me. Not what we were, but who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace, Jesus, that you have done everything necessary for us that we could be daughters and sons and have a new name and the shame would be removed. May we, as we leave this place today, not let others shame us, not let, not let the evil one allow the shame of our past identity to overshadow our, res our present reality. Oh Lord, set us free. May we enjoy being your children and we give you praise and honor and glory for all that you have done as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.